All right, guys, if you have your Bible, uh, open and find Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. If, uh, yeah, if you've been here through this whole uh, series, I congratulate you. It's been a long time because with this, with this chapter, we begin the final section of the book of Revelation. Uh, this, this will take us to the end of the book in chapter 22 and also take us to the end of the semester. And by the way, if you're going to be here during the summer, our plan is to study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. So we tend to dive into the Old Testament in the summertime. And then the aspiration when we come back in the fall for next school year in Sunday school will be studying through the book of Romans. So please pray for me. Um, but with Revelation 20, we're coming actually to one of the most hotly debated chapters in, certainly in the book of Revelation, perhaps in the Bible. Um, the main debate surrounds the meaning of, and if you've ever read Revelation 20, you know what I'm talking about, but we'll read it in just a second if you don't. The main debate it's going to center, it does center around the meaning of the millennium, the, a period of 1,000 years. A 1,000 year period, a millennium that is mentioned six times in verses 2 through 7 of Revelation 20. And the main debate, and again, uh, the, the, it's going to debate, uh, it's going whether, whether or not that's a symbolic number or is that a literal number or. Uh, if it is symbolic, what does it represent? Another aspect of the debate is um, not just what it is, symbolic or literal, but also when it is. When will it take place? It, it, some people believe that what is described here, this 1,000-year period, is a, is a period of time uh, which will occur immediately after Jesus returns. By the way, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on labels today, but, I mean, just for the sake of it, if you hear, it, hear of these words, you, you'll know sort of what they're about if you have no idea what they are. But this, those who would believe that this 1,000-year period is a, is a period of time after Jesus comes back and is a literal period of time, those would fall into usually one of two camps. Both will bear the name premillennial, uh, either classic premillennial or dispensational premillennial and the pre the millennium obviously is the 1000 years and what does premillennial mean it means that, that's the view that Jesus will return pre before that millennium okay um, other people believe that it is it is referring to a period of time literal or otherwise um, before Jesus returns and those will t tend to fall into two camps, uh, either post-millennial, that is, and that's a, that's a very small uh, amount of people that would hold that view, post-millennial, but similar to pre, post would mean Jesus is going to come back post the millennium, after, but a similar view with different nuances and many more, and I, I, I'll go ahead and lay the cards on the table, I fall into this view, is called amillennial. It's not that's a bad name for it. It's, it's like ah would mean like it's uh, not a thing. Like just what we say, someone's agnostic or just you think 
it's the ah prefix means not. Well, I know it's not we don't believe in a millennium. It's just not. I'll explain. But anyway, uh, but here's what I'll, and I'll explain. Uh, I'll try to explain my view on this. But but even to acknowledge a debate, even to acknowledge a debate here clearly reveals that not not everybody is agreed on these things, and even godly believe Bible believing. Uh, Christians within this church will come down on different sides of this question. Um, I had godly, super smart seminary professors come down on both sides of this question. So uh, all that to say, the thing, the thing to keep in mind whenever you start thinking about these things, talking about these things in all of this, is that everyone on both sides of the of the debate uh, believes and confesses that the Lord Jesus Christ will return bodily just as he was raised from the dead bodily. That's the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, that Jesus will return physically. Um, and that's the main point of orthodoxy. It's, it's one thing to question how he will come and when he will come. It's another thing entirely to question whether he will come. Right? That's what we're saying. So the Apostles' Creed, which we studied not too long ago, is a standard of orthodox Christian doctrine. And, he's, and that simply states of Jesus, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. That's the mark of orthodoxy. That it will happen is not debated. When and how is. Okay? Um, we all affirm our belief in the teaching of Scripture that there's a day coming when the risen Lord Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. That's not up for debate. With that said, I'll lay my cards on the table again, um, which at this point, by the way, the way I've been teaching Revelation, hopefully it won't come as a surprise to any of you, I hold the view that the 1,000-year period that is mentioned in this chapter, which we will read about in just a moment, is a symbolic number like practically every other number in the book of Revelation, and that it refers to a period of time before Jesus returns, not after, which means it's a period of time that we're in right now, okay? Um, yeah, so, okay. No, I'm not going to go there. All right. I hope to give, I hope to give uh, ample reasons from this chapter, why I take that position, and certainly all the reasons that I'm going to give are not limited to this just one chapter. As I've ho hoped to make painfully clear, just the very structure of the book of Revelation uh, is persuasive to this point. And, and I've, I've tried to point that out continually. So, that's, that's, by the way, that's why I, I believe that even before you read chapter 20, begin, which begin, it, knowing that it, if you've if you've been following the structure of the book up to this point, knowing that chapter 20 begins, begins the last section of the book, you might anticipate that it's going to start over again at the first coming of Christ. And when, and you, 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 so you would not expect to come to chapter 20 and immediately start talking about the second coming. And in fact, when you do start reading, um, it, it, it doesn't start exactly there. It starts talking about things surrounding the first coming of Christ. Okay. <sighs> um, let's, let's read the chapter. And beginning in verse 1, and then we'll, we'll dive in. 
John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. The, the Greek, by the way, there is for bottomless pit is abyss, the key to the abyss, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that, it's an important phrase here, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they, were tor they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We say, it, we confess that it's clear, and even though this is a, a debated chapter on the details, we still confess that it's clear because the main point of it is so crystal clear. That Jesus will come again and receive his people unto himself and judge the world. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not miss the forest for the trees. And uh, I pray that as a result of our time in the word this morning, we will, uh, we will know and love 
uh, the Lord Jesus more. Be more passionate to follow him. Bear witness to his name. So please give us eyes to see the truth here. Please give us minds to understand it clearly. Hearts to embrace it, wills to obey it. Give us all ears to hear, and please give me the help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's how I see the chapter dividing up. Uh, I don't necessarily have fancy names for these divisions, but you can just note them. Verses 1 to 3 describes things that, that that happened as a result of Jesus' resurrection from the dead during his first coming. That's verses 1 through 3. Chapter, excuse me, verses 4 through 6 are going to describe the same thing. Or, or at least the same period of time. Don't get, by the way, notice it's, verse 1 begins with the word then, then I saw. Verse 4, then I saw. Don't think of that necessarily as sequential. Because verses 4 through 6 is going to describe the same period of time as verses 1 through 3 just from a different vantage point, namely from the vantage point of heaven. What was heaven seeing and what was going on in heaven when verses 1 through 3 were happening? That's what verses 4 through 6 tell. That's kind of like the difference if you've been here through this whole section. Do you remember how of the 22 chapters of of Revelation, midfield was like chapter 11. And so between, that marked a big transition in the whole book of Revelation. Chapters 1 through 11 was talking about the things going on in the church, in the world. And then at, and then in, at chapter 12, for the rest of the book, it, 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 it's describing the same thing just from the, a heavenly vantage point. It's going to pull back, descri- describe the same thing and describe like the the spiritual realities that are going on that is causing all the struggle of the church in the world. That's the difference between chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 to 22. It's the same kind of thing, verses 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. Verses 1 through 3 and verses 1 through 6. Now, verses 7 through 10 will describe the period of time right before Jesus returns, which we will see at the end of the chapter. So verses 7 to 10 is right before Jesus returns. Verses 11 through 15 describe the return of Christ and the final judgment that comes with it. Now this final section over the next two chapters, chapters 21 and 22, will spend a lot of time describing the blessed eternal state of the redeemed. But that that blessed state that we will see in those two chapters are all the more blessed because of the judgments that will be dealt out in this chapter at the second coming of Jesus. Case in point, the sweet promise of chapter 21, verse 4, that death will be no more, death shall be no more. Why, why, why is that the case in 21.4? Because in chapter 20, verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Right? So Revelation 20 is an important chapter, and it requires careful thinking. First, I want to think about the number 1,000. Um, second, I want to think about when it happens. Third, I will address a common objection to the interpretation that I'm going to take. And then fourth, we'll look at the final judgment that happens when Jesus returns, not a 1,000 years after that. So let's think about each of these things in the text and start with the repeated reference here to a millennium, 1,000 years. What is it? So 
Let's think about this number 1,000. Is it, is it a literal 1,000 years? Is it a literal millennium? So as I mentioned, uh, there is a millennium, a period of 1,000 years that is mentioned six times in verses 2 through 7. And one, one prominent interpretation of it is to see it as a literal period of time of 1,000 years. Start the clock, you know. And, and another prominent view, however, that I take uh, understands it precisely the opposite as a symbolic number, um, referring to something real but other than a literal 1,000 years. Like, we're not saying start the clock, right? And I, and I said, as I said, I hold that view, and here's some reasons why. And I'm going to give you some reasons why I don't take it as a literal 1,000 years. For one thing, uh, consider, as I as already hinted at, throughout the book of Revelation, how much has been symbolic rather than literal in the, in the book of Revelation. I mean, in this chapter alone, we find thrones and serpents and marks on foreheads. Um, and, and we've just come through chapters that talk about beasts and prostitutes and dragons and bowls and trumpets and scrolls and horns and little horns, people that eat a scroll. I mean, it's, it, how symbolic is it? All of these things are symbolic images representing other realities and not real realities, but not to be taken literally. Like as if the whole point is something with ten literal horns. That's, that's clearly representing something else bigger by that image. And some of these things to be taken literally would be next to impossible to take it literally. Similarly, not just, a second reason would be this, not just how many things in Revelation are symbolic. Think about how many numbers are symbolic in the book of Revelation. Why? I mean, and, and by the way, on the number deal, if we took some of the numbers literally, that would be not just wrong, it would be scary. Um, why, for example, why, why, why in the first part of the book do you write to seven churches rather than eight, rather than six? Why seven? Uh, why refer to the Holy Spirit as, quote, the seven spirits of God? Three times it's... In chapter, chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 6. The seven spirits of God. He's, he's not seven. There's <laughs> one Holy Spirit. But it's symbolic to refer him to him as the seven spirits of God. Why were there seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls? Why, why is everything seemingly in a multiple of three or seven or twelve? Why, why, why were all the redeemed... This is the scary bit, if you take it literally. Why were all the redeemed... And I'm going to say they were symbolically numbered as 144,000. If you take that, unless you want to believe that's the literal cap on the number of the redeemed, you, you know that's a symbolic number. And, why, and, and, we, and, and, and there's, there is at least that kind of consistency in the book of Revelation, that almost everything is symbolic. doesn't mean it's meaningless. It's symbolic. We, twice we saw references to symbolic periods of time of 1,260 days. We saw that in chapter 11 and chapter 12. We also saw it described as a time, times, and half a time. How do you, how do you, how do you see that on your clock? Like, 
It goes on and on and on. One would be hard-pressed after 19 chapters of symbols and symbolic numbers to all of a sudden find a literal number in the 20th chapter. Over and over again in Revelation, simply because of the nature of of the book and its its genre, it's apocalyptic literature, Um, numbers especially are not to be taken literally. Satan does not literally have seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems, as we're told in chapter 12, verse 3. Symbolism. And, And I want to press this point. Just because it is to be taken symbolically is not to say it is without meaning. Okay? Uh, it doesn't mean it's me- meaningless. And we know that intuitively. If you're about to go, if you're nervous, or you're about to go do something important, and I tell you to break a leg, you will smile and say, thanks. You know that I don't mean that literally. I mean that symbolically in a way, and you know exactly what I mean by that. These symbols are symbolic and full of meaning, meaning that it is arrived, that is arrived by understanding them symbolically rather than literally, with help from the surrounding context, and more times than not, with help from the Old Testament. And in the case here in chapter 20, with the repeated mention of a thousand years, it would be odd to all of a sudden interpret this number literally when every other number has been rightly and obviously understood symbolically. So if that is the case, assuming that this number and this millennium, this a thousand year period is not literal, but is symbolic, what is it symbolic of? Okay, it's one thing to say, oh, it's a symbolic number. Okay, well then it means something. So what does it mean? What is it? And I take it to be a symbolic reference. Why, why a thousand? What does a thousand represent? It represents a definite but lengthy period of time. A long but definite period of time. Uh, it's not 10 years. It's not 100 years. It's 1,000 years. It's a long time. But it's 1,000 years. It's a definite period of time. Um, and by the way, if you've been here throughout this study in Revelation, if I gave you three guesses as to what that long but definite period of time is, I would hope in three guesses you could tell me what that is. I'll go ahead and give you the answer. It's the whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. That's a long but definite period of time. So the question is, when is it? I just gave away the answer. When does this long but definite period of time take place? Is it before Jesus comes back, meaning going on right now? Or after Jesus comes back? I think we can take a closer look and, 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 uh, and come to a better conclusion. So I believe the text here indicates, like I just said, that the, the millennium symbolically refers to a long but definite period of time beginning with the first coming of Jesus and ending with his second coming. So let's clearly, let's look at these early verses of the chapter and see why that is, because there is biblical warrant for it. One general key that I've already mentioned is that Revelation chapter 20 begins the, second, the seventh of the seven sections in the book of Revelation. And every section up to this point, all six sections before this point, began with the first coming and ended with the second coming and the final judgment. And there is no reason why we should interpret this seventh and final section any differently than the six that came before it. 
Now, another key found in these early verses is found in verse 1. Look there again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit or the abyss and a great chain. And it's that reference there to the abyss or the bottomless pit that is important for this point. I believe that, that uh, he ha- so you see in that verse, he's got a key to the bottomless pit. I think it's very likely that, that this is a reference to the same keys that Jesus was holding all the way back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 18, there was a reference, and it, it was in this very uh, symbolic description of the Lord Jesus, and he's holding keys in chapter 1, verse 18. The keys of death and Hades were in his hand. And it's noteworthy in chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus is holding those keys in chapter 1 to death and Hades, not by virtue of his second coming, but by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. This is what verse, chapter 1, verse 18 says. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. It's because he died and now is alive again that he has the keys. Why does he have the keys? Because he died and rose. First coming. A third piece of evidence. Because... Because Revelation is cyclical like this, it just goes in seven cycles over and over again, you have very often passages that parallel each other. You would expect that because it's not a linear book. It's saying the same thing over and over again. You would expect to have parallel passages. And you have that. A parallel passage to chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, is chapter 12, verses 7 to 12. Now, if you look in chapter, we'll get get there in just a second, but if you look at chapter 20, verse 3, Satan is thrown down and he's bound for a thousand years. Now, if if you held your place here and turned back to chapter 12, and you, you, you can turn or you can just listen, you see the same thing. Um that Satan is 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 thrown down in verse 9. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, right? But there again, in, in chapter 12, his being thrown down is not, because of his, is, is not by virtue of Jesus' second coming, but by virtue of his death and resurrection of his first coming. How do we know that? Because in chapter 12, in verses 1 through 5, that's describing the birth and the ascension of Jesus Christ at his first coming. And by virtue of that, he throws Satan down. Parallel passages like this, you can go back to chapter 20. Parallel passages like this are important within Revelation because, again, these cyclical sections repeat one another and thus they mutually help interpret one another. Right? Those are all things in the early verses that lead me to conclude that this thousand-year period mentioned here, symbolic as I said it was, is also something that is not going to happen beginning at his second coming, but began at his first coming. And, And not only that, 
that's just within Revelation. There are scads of other passages in the New, New Testament that confirm this. Um, Jesus himself, this, this, by virtue of his resurrection and ascension, he throws down and binds Satan. That idea is, is all over the New Testament. Jesus himself in Matthew 12, 28, talked about binding the strong man. The strong man being Satan. So Jesus said he bound Satan at his first coming. In Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 19, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And in that same passage that he saw Satan, and I'm going to say why this is important in just a second, but in that same passage where he saw Satan fall, in that same passage he gave authority to his disciples, authority over all the power of the enemy for their mission. That's going to be important. In John 12, as Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, knowing ahead of time what it would accomplish, Jesus said in, in John 12 verses 31 and 32 now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself the ruler of this world was cast out by the cross and resurrection in Colossians 2 15 Paul likewise tells us that when Jesus was nailed to the cross quote he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And finally, Hebrews 2.14 says that Jesus went to the cross so that, quote, through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So you put all that together. Evidence within Revelation as a whole evidence within Revelation 20 in particular, evidence from elsewhere in the New Testament, even from Jesus' own mouth, and the binding of Satan for a thousand years that we read about in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 20 seems to be the result of Jesus' death and resurrection of the first coming, part of the victory of Easter, and not something that we're waiting on at His second coming, at least not waiting on entirely. So, if Satan is bound for a thousand years, um, according to Revelation 20, verse 3, and all the other evidence that we've seen points to this binding beginning at his first coming with his death, resurrection, and ascension, that means that this symbolic 1,000-year period of time began at the first coming of Jesus, and the long but definite period of time that, the, that it represents will find its conclusion at the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus came the first time, he bound Satan in some way for this church age in which we live. That's what I'm saying. The age that we're in right now, symbolically represented in Revelation 20 as a thousand years. So that's what we've gotten so far. In this church age, by virtue of his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus bound Satan in a way, in some sense, for this church age in which we live. And when, when, and when he comes again, he'll finish it. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. But here, let me move quickly now to an objection that's often raised to this. 
And that is, that is this, this reasonable question. Is Satan really bound right now? Is Satan really bound right now? Because it, 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 you look at the world, it doesn't look like he's bound. Um, you, 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 you hear story, stories of missionary on the field, where place where Jesus hasn't been named, and there is demonic activity, and it certainly doesn't feel like Satan has been bound right now. Well, let's take a closer look at verse 3. And I want you to notice that it does not say, it does not say that Jesus bound Satan in every possible way so that he could do absolutely nothing. Look carefully at verse 3 again. It specifically says, it says for context in verse 2 that Jesus bound him for a thousand years, which we've said is this church age. And look about halfway through verse 3. In what way did he bind him? So that he, so that Satan, might not deceive the nations any longer. That precisely is what he is bound from doing. So right there, two questions. Who are the nations? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Who are the nations? And in what way is Satan bound from deceiving them? Let's, let's try to address those two questions. First, who are the nations referred to in verse 3? Well, a good place to, to start might be to consult the most recent place that that word has been used or that phrase. And we saw it in the last chapter, in chapter 19, verse 15, uh, which was describing the second coming of Jesus. It says, Revelation 19, 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And in that verse, it seems pretty clear that the nations is a reference to unbelievers all over the world. Since in that verse, they are the ones who will be judged at the return of Christ. So it seems that in the next chapter, just a few verses later, Satan is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. It means the unbelieving nations. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Even in, the, even in the parallel passage that we turn to in Revelation 12, Satan was thrown down and he's still able to deceive in some capacity. I take the view, and I'll try to demonstrate it here. I take the view, Satan will not be able to stop the effective preaching of the gospel and the success of the missionary enterprise or the growth of the church. Satan will not be able to deceive to such an extent that he can stop that. Jesus promised at his first coming that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. You ever thought about the gates of hell will not prevail against it? You ever thought about that gates are not offensive weapons? Gates are defensive structures, right? Hell will not be able to defend or prevent the advance of the gospel. Again, in John 12, 31, and 32 that we referenced just a minute ago, Jesus, where Jesus said the ruler of this world would be cast out, he said in the very next verse, verse 32, this would ensure that sinners would effectively be drawn to him. 
Somebody might object and say, and they might very, great, fine, and wisely point to, say, something like 2 Corinthians 4, 4, which says, the God of this world, little g God, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That doesn't seem very bound. But that same, that same passage, two verses later, just keep reading. That was verse 4. Verse 6 emphasizes the powerful sovereignty of God in the salvation of a sinner when Paul says in verse 6, But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's let there be light, Genesis 1, 3, that same God and that same power has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the God of this world can do all the blinding He wants, but the God who said, let there be light, when He says, let there be light in a heart, there's light. Until Jesus comes back, Satan's deceptive powers are bound to such a degree that he is simply unable to stop Jesus Christ from building his church. He's powerless to prevent the effective missionary enterprise of the church. And verses 4 through 6 assure us, and we don't have time to get into the minutiae, holy cow, i got to move. Verses 4 through 6 assure us that even apparent, even apparent victories... Apparent victories of the enemy, apparent victories in preventing the growth and the building of the church are just that, apparent. Because in verses 4 through 6, they show, you could read it later again in your own time, but what, what verses 4 through 6 are going to show that even the martyrdom of believers, which that would seem to be the most victorious thing that the enemies of Christ in the world could accomplish, the, the, the martyrdom of believers the killing them off, even that can't be claimed as a victory for the enemies of Christ because verses 4 through 6 is describing the same period of time as verses 1 through 3, but from the vantage point of heaven. And in verse 4, John sees thrones, which always indicate a scene in heaven. And he sees before the throne in heaven the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. That's re reminiscent of Scenes we saw earlier in Revelation chapter 6 where the wicked, the, 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 the martyrs were already before the throne of God crying out before the throne, How long, O God, before you judge the wicked? And again in chapter 12 and here in chapter 20, they're presented in heaven, reigning with Christ in heaven until His second coming where all the enemies of God will be judged and enter the second death, which is separation from God. So what I'm saying is even apparent victory victories for the enemies of Christ, such as the martyrdom of his people, will, when it's all said, will be seen to be hollow and actually victories for Christ. Jesus wins the battle in building his church, and he will win decisively for all to see when he returns, which is the story of the second half of the chapter. Consider with me quickly, essentially, this chapter's description of the end of the world. We'll have to look very quickly at this. Notice how at the end of verse 3, it says that at the end of the 1,000 years, which is at the end of this church age, Satan must be released for a little while, or after a little while, or for a little while, that's what it says. And it seems that that, that happens right before Jesus returns and the final judgment happens because that's the very next scene in the chapter. 
When it, when it says that Satan must be released for a little while, it means Satan's deceptive activity and ability will actually increase in the unbelieving nations of the world. He will harden them against God. And in verses 7 to 8, it says he will gather them for battle. But I do want you to notice very carefully that verse 3 says, after that, he must, he must be released for a little while. Why must he? It doesn't say he will be. It says he must be released. That, that word must shows that there is a purpose behind his release. And it's not Satan's purpose behind it because he had been bound in preventing from executing his purpose. No, he is released according to the plan and purpose of God. That's why he must be released. Because God is willing it. Which is what is God's plans and purpose to bring the final judgment to pass. The day when, according to verse 10, if you're looking at it, the devil and all, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the final, final judgment of Satan will then issue into the great white throne judgment against all who opposed the Lord, who had died in that unbelief, who were hardened in that unbelief and rebellion when Christ returns. Notice in verse 11 that this creation, and when, that, when that judgment comes, when Jesus returns and that judgment comes with him, this creation as we know it is ended. Notice it says in verse 11, earth and sky fled away. And notice how twice we're told in verses 12 and 13 that all came before him to be judged according to what they had done. All will be judged according to works. But the key phrase in, is in verse 15, and whose names were not written in the book of life. Because you might read that judgment and everyone is, everyone is judged on that day according to what they had done. And you know what you have done. I know what I have done. And that's a sobering thought. But again, the key phrase is verse 15, whose names are, not ri whose names are written not written in the book of life, because for those whose names are written, that is, those who have trusted and put their hope in Christ, they will be judged according to Christ's works. So it says according to what they had done. Yes, but they, the believers, are in Christ. And His works have been imputed to them. And we see it typified in places like Zechariah 3 where the high priest is clothed in the righteousness of, 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 of God as he's standing being accused by Satan. Or as Paul says, Paul says in Philippians 3, 9, that believers are found in him. They are found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. What, what is written in those books at that judgment, what is written in the books for unbelievers at the great white throne judgment is every sin ever committed, every careless word ever spoken. An entire record of debt stands against them, which apart from Christ stands against us. 
But what is, what is written in the books for believers? What is, when, the, when the book is open at the great white throne judgment for believers, what is written there? It is finished. It's finished. And I think in that day, we will know more vividly and more fully than we ever have before all that is meant by grace alone. Grace alone. In verse 14, at the conclusion of the judgment, death and Hades itself are thrown into the lake of fire. And this will set the stage for the blessed reward of believers that will be amply described in the final two chapters. That's Revelation 20. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would um, make sense of all that I said and Anything true that I said, I pray that you would help us to remember. Anything wrong that I got, you'd help us to forget. And Lord, uh, I, I, I pray. I, I thank you. I, Lord, I, I do feel like Revelation 20 is, is far more than a debate. It is a, it is a deeply encouraging chapter. That, at, that all the successes that you one, Lord Jesus, are not all waiting for your second coming. No, no. The successes were inaugurated when you rose from the dead. When the successes were inaugurated. They were fully accomplished, but inaugurated in practice at the first Easter. Satan is bound to such a degree that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Even if we should die for Christ, that is victory for Christ, and death and Hades in the end will be thrown into the lake of fire. Or what a what an encouraging word. I pray that you would help us to think and take what what what, what can we do, Lord, from from this hour to the next hour this morning? I think what Revelation twenty helps us to do as we as we go uh, into the next hour where we're going to talk about the resurrection in Matthew 28, what Revelation 20 helps us to do is, is to take the long view. Uh, yeah, that, that, um, that Jesus is risen from the dead, and Jesus is one day coming again. And, and no matter what um, setbacks or sorrows we face in this world, we do not have to grieve as those who have no hope. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.